so good to be back at Brookhaven. Um, I was so excited when I received the invitation from Pastor John to come and be part of your Missions Emphasis Month again this year. And I shared with him at the first service, and I'll share with you again. Um, in my role with Global Partners, I do a lot of speaking during the week um, at camps and that sort of thing, especially during the summer. But I'm also the lead pastor of a small church, um, and so I don't often wander off and speak for Global Partners on a Sunday morning. In fact, I only do that once a year, and I was here last year. So Brookhaven, you're it. <laughs> so anybody else gets to know. Um, and I was thrilled to be able to come back um, and share again this morning with you. And I have been thinking a lot over the last several weeks about Peter's letters in the New Testament. Um, And just over this past couple of weeks in 2 Peter, he talks about that the reason that he's writing is to remind the church of what they already know to be true. And I feel in many ways that's what I'm here to do this morning, is to remind you of a call that's on your life, and you already know that it's there. But sometimes we need to be reminded, and sometimes a yes that we've already given to the Lord is a yes that we need to put feet to. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, And so this morning, I believe that the Lord is calling some of you who have already given God your yes. You said, we're in. Brookhaven as a church is in. We believe in seeing the gospel go to all parts of the world. We want to support that. We are willing. But sometimes we need to be reminded, what, what does it look like to continue to put feet to that yes? It's a privilege to be able to be a reminderer this morning. It was the year 2012, and I found myself in a very cold and crowded church hall of an immigrant congregation in the very multicultural nation of New Zealand. I was the only person in the room who looked very much like how I look, and I was a very rookie missionary. I think that my color was actually green that day, and I had been asked to come that weekend to spend time with this immigrant church with the special emphasis of being able to communicate the gospel to the next generation. In this congregation, those over the age of about 35 or 40 would not have had English as their heart language. It was not their first language. In fact, there were some who were so gracious to sit and be part of services that weekend, not understanding one word that came out of my mouth because they don't understand English at all. But for those that were younger in that congregation, English was their heart language because they had moved to New Zealand either um, very early in their life or perhaps were even born there and were part of a church that wasn't normally operating in English. So like, oh, bring the, the missionary and she can preach so that our young people can understand, which is missional in itself, right? Isn't that awesome that these families grasped that, that their kids needed to hear the gospel in their heart language? So I was new. I'm there for the weekend. We're about to sit down to a meal. And the food that is in front of me, none of it looks familiar to me. (laughs) In fact, there are a lot of question marks in my mind as I look at what's in front of me. I don't know what I am about to eat. The food is blessed, and I grab my fork that was sitting next to my plate in front of me, and I started to dig in. And we all know the sound that a fork, a metal fork, makes when it hits a plate. Right? That clanging sound. And if you remember, this hall was crowded. 
It was a small hall with probably 70 people crammed in. People were just sitting side by side with no tables other than a few of us that got to sit at a table. And I'm eating, and I realize I only hear one fork clanging on a plate. And it's mine. And I started to look around the room and realize I have the only fork in the entire hall. Nobody else was given a fork, just the rookie missionary. And in that moment, I had two dual revelations. The first revelation was this. The meal that I was being served was quite similar to a meal we had in my household growing up of fried chicken and french fries. The finger-looking good kind of meal, right? Where a utensil just slows you down because this is the good stuff and you just dig in. I realized this is that kind of meal in the cultural context that I found myself in. And then the second realization that I had was that while someone very graciously and kindly had understood that this whole thing was going to be super unfamiliar to me and that maybe a fork will make the American feel a little bit more comfortable, that actually that fork was slowing me down, not just in eating the finger-licking good food. It was slowing me down in sharing my life and the word with the people to whom God had called me. It was an unnecessary barrier. It created a me and them instead of just an us. And as I had those revelations, the Holy Spirit spoke to me very clearly. One of the most clear moments I've heard his voice, it was almost audible. And he just said three words, drop the fork, Amber. And so I laid my fork back on the table. And I started to dig into the food with my hands. And I saw some approving looks around the room. People noticed. They're like, oh, okay. Like she really wants to be one of us. She wants to engage. She doesn't want to be different or separate. But that moment was much more significant for me than it was for anybody else in that hall that day. Because this idea of dropping the fork became a symbol, a mantra a theme for my life, first as a missionary, but now simply as a missional follower of Jesus Christ. I'd like to share how, how that came to mean for me, a definition of drop the fork. For me, it began to mean to leave behind any familiar comforts, agendas, possessions, mindsets, or ways of life which slow me down from sharing the message of Jesus with the world. Can I share with you, I have to drop the fork daily. Daily. Jesus described what it is to follow him as taking up our crosses daily. Sometimes that can seem really big. And I loved what Jade had to say in the video about God taking the little things and using them in big ways. Taking up our cross, sometimes that sounds impossible or maybe even mysterious. What would it even look like for me to take up my cross every day? But I can, I can wrap my head around the image of just dropping the fork. I don't have to hold on to that because it slows me down from doing what God has called us to do as his church. The Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 has come to be a model example for me of what it looks like to drop the fork. I want us to look at her life, her story a little bit, just a snapshot in John chapter 4, starting with verse 25. 
The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who was called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Just then, his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Or why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Now we have jumped into this story right at the end. It's a rather familiar passage, but just to remind us again that Jesus and his disciples have been traveling. They go through Samaria. We'll come back to that in a moment. They go through Samaria and they go to this well and Jesus begins this conversation with a Samaritan woman and the conversation covers a lot of ground, a lot of topics, everything from where is it proper for people to worship God to some topics that would have been rather uncomfortable, I think, for this woman about her personal history where Jesus Jesus had divine knowledge about her past failed marriages for whatever reason and how the man that she was currently with was not her husband. And I just get the feeling that the woman starts to get a little bit too uncomfortable to have this intense conversation. And so she tries to just defer the whole thing by saying, well, when the Messiah comes, (laughs) then he'll answer all our questions and he'll tell us everything that's true. Back off. (laughs) And Jesus says to her, I am the Messiah. And when she hears that, it all clicks. This is the one that we have been looking for. This is the one who is the answer to all of our questions. He is the perfect Moses who would bridge the gap between creator God, the God of the patriarchs, and the people. That this is him. And when she realizes who he is, she cannot hold it in. And without any discipleship training, without going through youth group, without sitting in Sunday school classes, without attending a missions emphasis month in a local church, she immediately drops the fork and participates in the mission. She cannot hold it in. And it tells us in the text that she leaves behind the jug at the well that she had brought to get water. Her agenda of that day was laid down. The item on her schedule was pushed to the side. The jug would have slowed her down if she had taken it with her, and so she leaves it behind. The Greek tells us that she goes. I love that the NLT sees the implications here. She can't take the jug because she's going fast. And so the New Living says that she ran back to the village. Agenda of the day, not as important as this mission. I think about other ways that she dropped the fork. I don't think it was just her agenda that she let go of in order to share about Jesus with people who needed to hear it. I'm pretty confident there was some shame left behind at that well. We know the little bit of her background. I kind of doubt that public speaking in her village was on her agenda for that day. I'm pretty sure that she dropped a fork when she left behind some fear. 
Later in this passage, the word that's used to describe what she does is testify. Something that a woman was not considered worthy of doing in a court in that day. She wasn't considered someone with the authority to testify. I am confident that she left her fear behind at the well. Because understanding who Jesus really was... And that people needed to know in the same way that she knew that overcame her and her fear would have held her back. So she dropped it. She left it behind at the well. She tells them to come and see. To come and see this Jesus. Jesus was the greatest example of leaving and going of leaving things behind. He had left Judea for Galilee, and the text says that he had to go through Samaria. I'm sure, again, this is familiar, but this probably is not geographic. And if you study the Gospel of John, when Jesus had to do something, it was for the sake of his mission in the world. He had to have this conversation with this woman. He had to reveal to her who he was. And in doing so, he dropped the fork of cultural norms. You see it in the reactions of the disciples when they come back and see who he is engaging with at this well. One, she's a woman. Two, she's a Samaritan. What are you doing, Jesus? Why are you talking with her? They thought. But Jesus' whole life was a life of dropping the fork. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, Paul describes it this way. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Jesus' whole life was one of laying things down for the sake of his mission to reach the world with the knowledge of who he was. Like this woman, the disciples had also left much behind for the sake of Jesus' mission. Instead of a water jug at a jar, it, it, was, it was a fishing net, a boat, a tax collector's booth. <laughs> They had left much behind for the sake of the mission. But part of the purpose in Jesus going through Samaria wasn't just about the Samaritan woman. It wasn't just about those that she would share about Jesus with. It was also about these disciples because they needed to witness what was happening. Jesus had something more to teach them. That yes, they were living a life where they had dropped the fork. They had let things go in order to be on mission. But Jesus wanted to show them what the next step would look like. He had more to prepare them for, for future greater cost of faith. We look at verse 31. It says, meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus replied, I have a kind of food you know nothing about. Did someone bring him food while we were gone? The disciples asked each other. Then Jesus explained, My nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. Jesus had food they knew nothing about. We know from the context that they had been traveling, 
They're tired. They're depleted. The reason they go to the well is because Jesus is thirsty. It's implied in the story that Jesus had sent the disciples to get food, to bring it back. And yet when they return, they're like, well, did somebody feed him? Rabbi, why aren't you eating? You need to eat something. But for Jesus, he found nourishment through sacrificial, obedient action in fulfillment of God's mission in the world. The food of obedience took priority over the food of the body. We're in the season of Lent right now. If you're a church calendar person, um, I kind of am. I've become more of a church calendar person. And one of the traditions in this season is to fast. Why? Because it's to remind us of our greater need, that there is a food that we need more intensely than just the food that feeds the body. And Jesus is trying to help the disciples understand this, that his salvific mission took priority over his personal comfort, that he was feasting on his costly obedience to God's will that would bring a harvest into his kingdom. And Jesus had to know the taste of that food of obedience that cost. And he had to know the satisfaction of the taste of that food. Or how else would he endure the cross? How else would he lay down every ounce of his comfort? Endure a kind of suffering that none of us could imagine. It was because he knew the taste of this food. The fulfillment of costly obedience for the sake of the mission. He ate food his disciples knew nothing about yet. They would be called to eat that food. Dropping the fork for them would become more costly as founders of the early church, many of whom would be martyred for the sake of their evangelization work. And Jesus needed them to witness this whole encounter Because he wanted to begin to just put an appetizer in front of them. Say, look, you're seeing me drop the fork. You're seeing me deny myself for the sake of the mission. You're going to see even more. But this food tastes good, friends, if you will acquire a taste for it. As a missionary, I had to acquire a taste for a lot of food. (laughs) And I'll be honest that some of it, the first time I tried it, didn't go over too well. I remember one meal where I spent the entire meal praying, Jesus, please don't let me puke. Jesus, please please don't let me puke. Jesus, please don't let me puke. But, you know, we acquire a taste for new food. And some of that food that at first looked so impossible, like suffering might look, like financial sacrifice might look, like leaving your home country behind might look. Some of that food, after I allowed myself to engage in eating it, I acquired a taste for it and it satisfied. And Jesus is modeling for his disciples, I will eat this food of costly obedience and I will call you to eat the same food. So you need to start understanding that there is something that satisfies more than your physical comfort. There is something that satisfies more than your physical food and it is radical sacrificial obedience to my mission to reach the whole world with the gospel I uh, made a really a uh, big move in my life this past year 
might be one of the scariest things I've ever done. I joined a gym. And if you are like me, then you would understand that it's one of the scariest things in the world you could ever do. If you're not like me, then you're like, well, what? You, what? That's okay. I love you. I work out with people like you now. And, you know, Lord willing, maybe I'll become like you one day. But it was one of the scariest things I've ever done. And one of the practices that I have adopted since joining the gym is that sometimes I take a book with me to read while I'm on the treadmill. And over the last few months, I picked up a book called Hearts of Fire. It's the stories of costly faith of women in the underground church. And I started taking this book with me to the gym as I'd walk on the treadmill, and I'm pretty sure that everybody else at that gym now thinks that I am absolutely insane because they look over at me on the treadmill, and I'm just weeping. Not sweat, friends, it's tears. Lots of them, okay? Reading these stories of these women who I have become convinced know the food that Jesus is talking about in a way that I do not. Yet, one of the women in that book, the name that she is used for her in the story is Ling. When she was 17, Ling in China received a call to go as an evangelist and preach the name of Jesus to the people of China. She didn't even yet own a Bible. At 17 years old, with very little food, very little money, she left home without a plan other than dependency on the Holy Spirit because she had to be on mission. She had to tell people who did not yet know, who had not yet heard, that he has come, the one who is the answer to all of our questions, the Messiah. God anointed this teenager's ministry. People would be on their knees in villages giving their lives to Christ as the 17-year-old little girl is preaching to them without a Bible. By the time she was 30, she was imprisoned for seven months because of her involvement in evangelization and smuggling Bibles into people through the underground church. While in prison, she was tortured at one point so severely that, get this, for 15 days... She could not move, not to relieve herself in the bucket in the corner of her cell, not to eat. For 15 days, her body was so wrecked that she lay there in one posture. 15 days. At 30 years old, after her release from that imprisonment, These are the words that she spoke to some other believers in China. She said this, I know I couldn't have made it without God's help and your prayer support. Believe me, there were many days when I didn't think I could go on, but God was faithful to always remind me of his love during those times. While I was there, I couldn't dwell on anything but my complete dependence on God. And that dependence forced me closer to him. Now let's get real for a moment. Fifteen days in so much pain that you can't get up to relieve yourself in a bucket, and all she says she can think about is God's love for her and her dependence on him, that is a food I do not know. 
like Ling, the disciples who witnessed this encounter with a Samaritan woman and then with her people would one day suffer for the cause of global evangelization. And they needed to be prepared by acquiring a taste for the same food that Jesus was eating. That costly obedience for the sake of the mission. I wonder this morning, coming back to this image, because things just got real heavy, let's come back to a fork. (laughs) In what small ways might God be asking you to taste a different kind of food? What would costly obedience look like for you that you might pull a chair up to a different kind of table and maybe it's just an appetizer, you know, chips and salsa. (laughs) But to begin to taste that food of costly obedience in a way that you haven't before. Remember, the disciples had already dropped the fork in so many ways. They left behind the nets. They left behind the boats. They left behind their old, their old vocations. But God is calling them to taste a new taste of sacrificial obedience and see how satisfying it is. What might it look like for you? I didn't share this this morning, and the Lord laid it on my heart before the service to be vulnerable with you about this. Now, I know that you have a lot of money yet to raise for your mission's goal. And I was thinking about what it looks like to taste new food of sacrificial obedience when it comes to giving. I right now, right now, if you were to walk into my house and into my room, on my dresser, there are two letters from individuals that I know and love who are about to go and serve overseas asking for my support. And I haven't done anything with those letters yet because I want to say yes. But the reality is I'm going to have to drop a couple forks if I'm going to say yes. Just real. Rubber hits the road. What would it be for you to begin to taste that new food? Because if you acquire a taste for it, it tastes good. Moving on, verse 35. You know the saying. Four months between planting and harvest. But I say, wake up and look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. The harvesters are paid good wages, and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy! awaits both the planter and the harvester alike. You know the saying, one plants and another harvests, and it's true. I sent you to harvest where you didn't plant. Others had already done the work, and now you will get to gather the harvest. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I ever did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Then they said to the woman, now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. Fields are ripe for harvest. God's people must leave behind, go and testify so the Savior of the world might stay with the peoples of the world. This harvest of souls that Jesus allowed the disciples to be part of, 
Man, I can just imagine the kind of spiritual high (laughs) as they ate that food that someone else's costly obedience had harvested. But they got a taste for the food. This is what it feels like to see a harvest of souls. This is what it feels like to see the kingdom advance, to see the gospel go out, and that taste is worth any earthly sacrifice. The harvest is now, and the harvest is bigger than us or here. Again, you already know this, church. You know that it's bigger than us. You know that it's bigger than here. But sometimes we need to be reminded. The Samaritans understood themselves as being separate from Judaism. This woman did not associate herself with the Jewish people. She was not in their in-club. They were not in hers. And so when Jesus, this Jewish Messiah, claimed to be their Messiah, the Samaritan Messiah, they instantly understood what the disciples probably didn't quite yet grasp, that he is the Savior of the whole world. In John chapter 4, that is proclaimed by the Samaritan people. They get it. If he's here for us, he's here for everybody. If he's here for here, he's here for every other place where there are people on this planet. And the harvest is now. The call is implicit here, which is explicit in Luke chapter 10, verses 2 to 3. And these verses also happen to be the verses that confirmed Ling, that 17-year-old teenage girl in China. These were the verses that confirmed her call that someone shared over her life. Luke 10, 2-3, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. This Samaritan woman in the story did not try to hold in the word that burned in her heart. She couldn't. Ling did not try to hold in the word that burned in her heart. She couldn't. If we will be reminded of the reality of the Messiah who has come and rescued us, who broke our chains, who took our pain, all those things that we sing about, that we give testimony about, if we remind ourselves who it is that we have found, we cannot allow ourselves to be held back from participating in his mission to reach the world. We can't do it. The sacrificial obedience of the disciples who witnessed all of this would eventually bring suffering and even martyrdom for most of them. But the food of the harvest. Can you imagine to be there at Pentecost and see thousands come to know the Lord? Can you imagine being able to be part of taking the gospel to places where it hadn't yet reached, where nobody knew the name of Jesus? You know that we have missionaries doing that right now. (laughs) The taste of that food. To see God's spirit stay. I love that part of the text. They begged Jesus to stay in the village, and he did. He stayed for two days. And his desire, I believe that the, lo- the, the deepest longing of God is to stay with all the peoples of the world. But our reality check is that there are still three billion people living among unreached people groups who have no access to a Christian church, no access to a Bible, no access to a believer in Jesus. The harvest is now. We all have a part to play. We're all called to leave and go in some way. To leave something behind. 
For some of you in this room, I believe this call absolutely is geographic. To leave behind the here and the comfortable and to go somewhere else where people still need to hear the name of Jesus for the first time. So friends, how is God calling you to drop the fork? What do you need to leave behind that would hold you back or slow you down? For the woman, it was shame. It was fear. It was her agenda. It was her time. What is it for you? Is it financial? Is it about your schedule? Is it about your willingness to be uncomfortable for the sake of the gospel? What would it mean to pull a chair up to the table of that food of sacrificial obedience for the sake of the mission? To whom is Jesus calling you to go to share the news of Jesus? Whether across your street, across this city, or across an ocean, are you willing to go? How might God ask you to lean in in your support of others who are eating a food that probably none of us would ever taste, though the Lord might call some of us to, myself included, he might. But how do we support them as they eat the food of suffering to reach the unreached? Each of you were given a fork as you came in this morning. If you're like me, you might have been playing with it through the whole service. That's cool. I speak to youth a lot. Youth love object lessons, helps them remember. The reality is I need object lessons. They help me remember. I think that older people could really use help remembering object lessons, right? (laughs) They're helpful. This morning, I want you to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you about what your fork might be. The band's going to come here in a little bit. They're going to lead us in some singing, some response. But I believe that some of you in this room... You already know what the Holy Spirit is asking you to give up, to lay down for the sake of the mission. And friends, it doesn't mean you haven't laid things down before, right? It doesn't mean this is the first time. I really believe this is a group of people that in large part you've given God your yes, but but God is saying, you know what? I'm going to ask you to lay this down now. If you know what it is that God's asking you to do, what he's asking you to give up for the sake of the mission, I'm going to challenge you to come to these altars And instead, last year I sent you away with something. This year I want you to leave something behind. Would you drop your fork, symbolizing whatever it is? Maybe you need to hit your knees and you need to spend some time in prayer because it's not going to be an easy thing to give it up. And i got to be honest with you, I'm going to join you at these altars because there's some forks i got to lay down to support those two missionaries on my dresser. There are others of you in this room that What God is speaking to you, it's huge, and you need a conversation and accountability that actually you need to take this work with you this morning, and you need to set up a meeting with a pastor, a shepherd in your life immediately, as quickly as they can fit it on their calendar, and you need to drop this work on their desk and say, Pastor, this is what God has asked of me, and this is what's held me back, whether it was my fear, my shame, my time, my comfort, but I want to give God my yes and actually put feet to it. Will you hold me accountable? Will you walk with me in what it looks like to be faithful to eat the food of costly obedience. Some of you this morning will say, you know, I I really don't know. The Lord's not speaking to me something specific. If that's you, I'll let you take the fork, okay? You can take it home. But only so that it'll remind you when it comes time to drop it, when the Lord shows you. And if this ends up in the trash, my prayer for you right now is every time you pick up a fork to eat a meal, the Holy Spirit's saying, drop the fork, drop the fork, drop the fork. It's the object lesson that keeps giving and you can't escape it. (laughs) 
that God's calling you to a different kind of food. But you've got to dig in with your hands and you can't let anything hold you back. Can we respond to the Holy Spirit this morning? I believe he's here. Can I get an amen? Is the Holy Spirit here? Is he speaking? He's moving. Don't walk away from this service this morning not having pulled that chair up to eat that food. Whatever it is that holds you back, it's not worth it. A harvest of souls, man, that is joy. That is feast. Give your yes feet. It's time to leave some stuff behind. Let's respond to the Lord this morning.